welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, August 25th, we are studying Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 21. Moses reminds Israel that they are sons of the Lord their God, and then he speaks to them concerning implications of this truth in matters of mourning and in matters of diet. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Always great to be here. So we're in Deuteronomy 14 today. Let's talk a little context as we get started. What should we know about Deuteronomy, what Moses has been talking about leading up to this point? Well, I, I mean, Deuteronomy, of course, is the uh, is the quintessential book right before uh, the Israelites all head into the, uh, into the promised land. And so you can kind of think of it as Moses' sort of last really, really, really long sermon to them. So he's preparing them um, not only for entering the land, but he's also doing obviously a lot of repetition about things that they've already been instructed. Because remember, you know, uh, most of these people uh, don't remember coming out of Egypt. And so in many ways, this is kind of like uh, recatechizing the, uh, the current generation for them. And so, of course, we all remember the, the many mistakes that they've made in, in the wilderness. And in many ways... Moses is reminding them who they are and uh, and whether they're in the wilderness or once they get into the uh, the promised land, that should not change. They belong to the Lord and that entails a certain kind of life. I mean, so there's obviously a ton of applications, you know, for us today, what it means to be baptized children of God and um, and whatnot. I mean, today's <laughs> today's reading, of course, we were joking uh, I know as we were joking about it, um, may not seem to have a lot of application, but the broader theology of them being set apart and being distinct from the rest of the world certainly has a lot of application for us to though. Right. We get to read a long list of a variety of types of animals as a part of our text today. And so uh, perhaps the, the list of animals is not going to be as applicable, but the reason behind why the Lord gives these commands to his people, that will certainly be applicable for us today. So, Pastor Johnson, let's just go ahead and, and read the whole text here. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 21 this morning. Moses continues, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. 
yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds. But these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 to 21. Pastor Johnson, as, as I look at the text and the way that it would have been heard by Israel in Moses' day, there's two primary aspects for everyday life that he's talking about here. You've got this matter of mourning, what you do when someone's died, and how you can and can't mourn. And then the longest part of this is, is what do you eat and what do you not eat? So as we think about those things and the specifics here, let's start with that broader theological context what in these verses do we need to see that set that broader theological context that is still going to apply for us today? Right, right. And it's really all summed up pretty well in verses one and two. Um, and the first thing, which we should spend actually quite a while on, even though it's just such a short phrase, you are the sons of the Lord, your God. Now, if the first thing you want to notice is this is a declaration. <laughs> this is not a contingent statement. This is not an if then uh, the Lord doesn't say, well, if you'd like to be the sons of the Lord, your God, then here's what you need to do. Um, this is descriptive. Um, you know, I don't know if this happened to you when you were growing up, but I still remember my parents, especially my dad, often saying, well, you know, in this household, we da 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 da, which is, you know, um, which was really to say, this is the way we conduct ourselves in this family, right? And I think there's something very, very similar going on here. The question is whether or not the Israelites are the sons of the Lord. The, uh, the question is, will they conduct themselves in accordance with uh, the reality the Lord has already created for them? And I think that, that really warrants a deeper dive into this. Simply the statement, you are the sons of the Lord your God, should really make our ears perk up. Because what that means, uh, that we all, you know, are very, very familiar with in the New Testament, um, you know, as Jesus says, you know, he invites his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Well, if we are sons of the Lord your God, that means he's our, our Father. And um, that right there is, I think, really significant to understanding this entire, you know, all these long sets of prohibitions that fundamental to all of these you know, um, convictions and commands is the fact that God is their father. And so, um, you know, so we, we do well to take a step back here and think about how the Lord, um, 
how the Lord really adopted, you know, the children, uh, you know, the children of Israel really as his own people. So uh, you got to kind of rewind all the way back to the, the, uh, the beginning of Exodus. You know, of course, the Israelites, they're, you know, they're, they're stuck in Egypt. They're slaves. Um, they, uh, you know, and, and in many ways, I think we often forget, too, that um, the Israelites don't have a, you know, a profound and well-developed theological understanding of who the Lord is. Um, in fact, if you remember, Moses even asks the Lord when he comes to him in the burning bush, he asks him, uh, he says, hey, well, if the people ask, who do you, you know, who are you, right? I mean, who do I say that you are? Because I think it's presumed that in many ways, you know, 400 years has gone by. We don't have any really solid evidence that there's kind of a strong theological catechesis going on, you know, uh, year after year. They don't have the, um, you know, they, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have the, uh, you know, the Book of the Covenant. They don't have uh, all of these uh, explicit instructions that they later on get. And so... I think it's even though the Lord is still their father, that doesn't mean that they really understand it very well. And so um, if you remember in uh, uh, Exodus tw- uh, 4, um, he, uh, he sends Moses. He says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And of course, that that eventually takes fruition when it comes to the Passover. But note that well, is that the, the Lord, even with um, at least seeming little understanding on behalf of the Israelites, the Lord unequivocally says, he is my firstborn son. All the, all the children of Israel, they are my son. And that means I'm their father and I'm going to uh, to take care of them. Later on, of course, we have this reflected, you know, famously in that passage uh, that gets quoted in Matthew from Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son, which Jesus later fulfills. But that's probably a conversation. Probably getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So (laughs) that's right. Yeah. I mean, this, this the notion that. Israel is the son of God, and as you pointed out in Exodus, the firstborn son of God. Later, that makes a that's a really important point when we think about who Jesus is and what he fulfills and what he does in the New Testament. He succeeds where Israel doesn't succeed, mm-hmm. which is is perhaps involved in Deuteronomy 14, but maybe takes us in a different direction than we want to take it here today. We're, we're trying to think about how the fact that Israel is the son of God, all of the Israelites are sons of God, as he said, how does that apply to us? So what is, why is this relationship that God establishes with himself as father, his people as son, why is that so significant? Right. Because it tells us what we should expect from the Lord. Um, I mean, I think this this touches really nicely on Luther's theology of, uh, you know, of the hidden God. I mean, I, and I think this is largely underappreciated because we live in a, in a culture and a society which just assumes that, like, God's a really nice guy and he's going to, you know, he's going to be nice and do nice things for us, right? But when you, when you really look at, um, you know, um, how the Lord has re- revealed himself biblically, you know, um, apart from his fatherhood, he, he's a pretty terrifying character. I mean, you know, this is this is the same God who, uh, you know, 
who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, who just, you know, uh, who leveled the world with a, uh, a flood and, you know, chose to, uh, to save Noah and his family. And I think we do really well to honestly ask, well, what, and, and we ought to ask this with perhaps at least a bit of humility, if not even perhaps a little bit of fear and trembling, what are we going to expect from God? But I think when, um, when he reveals himself as a father, though, that is, um, you know, I think it gives us a couple of, of, of cues. Um, and I take these from really Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but I think they're nicely reflected throughout the Old Testament. That, that first of all, one of the things we can expect from, the, from having God as our father is his approval. Um, you know, and so under, you know, under the father's care, if you remember from the, uh, the sermon on the Mount, um, there's that, um, there's that threefold, um, uh, those threefold, um, exhortations Jesus gives, you know, he talks about almsgiving, he talks about prayer and he talks about fasting. He says, don't do these things because you think you're going to get, you know, um, you think that your neighbor is going to be really impressed with you, Right. Mm -hmm. Because your father in heaven sees these things and what he sees in secret, he rewards. Now, of course, I think as Lutherans, we tend to be a little, a little bit allergic to that kind of terminology. But the real point of it is, is you don't do it for human approval, right? You don't do it as some kind of virtue signaling for the sake of your neighbor who's going to say, oh, you know, that Pastor Apple, he's a really great guy because look how much he gives to the church, right? Um but instead, we entrust ourselves to the Father that that He would actually, um, you know, that we would be free to do these things, to to do these holy acts, these things that are that are set apart for us, um, not for the sake of human praise, but simply out of loving response to the Father. And I think that's such an easy thing to then kind of. Um, a framework then to apply to Deuteronomy 14. Like, why are all the Israelites doing this? Is it because they're, they're earning brownie points? No. It Verse 1 states it so clearly. You are sons of the Lord your God, and therefore, you know, here you go. You shall not cut yourselves, and you're, you're people holy of the Lord. Here's all the things you should eat. Here's all the things you shouldn't eat. But key to all of that is the fact that the Lord has already established his relationship with you. And all of these things are simply a result of that. He, you already have his approval. That's the point. Right. So the, the relationship of a, a father and a son is not one in which the, the son establishes the relationship. Right. right. My children are not my children because of something that they did. Right. My children are my children because that's who they are. And then how they live, what they do comes as a result of that. It's the same thing with, with us and God. Right. I mean, in, in this, I, if it sounds esoteric, it's really, it's really not. It's, it's profoundly practical and, and obvious, really. Right. When I tell, you know, my daughter has to unload the dishwasher and I don't say, well, you know, if you'll unload the dishwasher well, then you'll be my child today. Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, no, right. nobody would take that seriously, right? Um, and, and so likewise, in a similar way, that relieves us of the burden of saying, well, this is what it means to live holy lives. Like, oh, man, if I'm going to be, you know, um, well, if God's really going to be happy with me, I better go about doing all these things. Like, no, he, we have his approval. That's why we do these things. 
Yeah. When maybe maybe the way to think about it too is is not only in terms of like a, a chore, something that you have to do, but rather as a gift, something that you get to do or something that you receive as a part of the father's family. So I mean, sure, you know, sure. Maybe unloading the dishwasher is kind of <laughs> yeah. hard to, to think about it like that. It, yeah, but, well, you know, it wasn't I mean, the best example. I'll grant you that. Well, yeah. There there's something to it though. Like you you get to unload the dishwasher. Well, because why? What did you use those dishes for? Right. You ate here, and why did you get to eat here? Because you're a member of this family. This is one of the examples I like to use with my my youth confirmation class. That you know, if, if they came up to my door and they they knocked on it and I opened and, and they said, "Would you would you give me a sandwich?" I, I said, well, "How do you think I'd answer you?" And they're like, "Well, maybe you, you seem like a, a nice guy. Maybe you'll give me a sandwich, but but maybe not. I don't really know." And, well, the reason you don't know is because you're you're not a part of my household. You don't live in my house. But if one of my own children comes to me and says, "Dad," Can I have something to eat? Well, of course I'm going to give that to them because because they're a part of my family. And I think so. Maybe if we if we frame it more in the the gift language, right. and, and there is response. I'm not trying to take away the works by any means. You know, there there is that response of loving service that happens. Right. But maybe if we frame it in in terms of the gift first and foremost, which certainly goes in the way of the the Decalogue, how it starts with the Lord saying, "I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt," right. and that's the gift. Here's what right? that means, right? Maybe maybe we keep framing it in terms of the gift that really helps. I think, right? I mean, you know, and it stems from the fact that that being the sons of the Lord your God, and perhaps this is, I'm glad you mentioned that terminology because that's really what I'm trying to get at is that. Um, the you know the Israelites are by no means kind of earning or achieving the status that it comes to them as a gift, right? And so, likewise, this life of holiness, um, you know, which character or which is characterized by the fact of who they are already, is likewise a gift. I mean, you know, I know our kids probably don't usually think about it that way when we took him chores to do, but um, you know, but it is. It, it's a great thing. You know, to be part of the household and to be able to contribute in this way, that even is, uh, you know, in and of itself, um, uh, it's actually a beautiful opportunity for them. And like you say, a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so with with this relationship, then God is father, his people are children, they're his sons, and this is a gift. You've already talked about this means that we don't have to earn God's approval. We are his children, and then we live as that. What other implications are there to the the sonship, being being sons of God? Right, right. Um, you know, one of the th- well, if we go back to um, uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, um, being sons of God also— um, you know, he speaks about both uh, anxiety um, and even you might say distraction as well. What I mean by by anxiety, if you recall that that long interchange with Jesus and the uh, the people who are listening to him, he says, you know, don't be anxious about what we, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Your for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, right? Um, which is which is a tremendous. Um, you know, beautiful gospel sort of message because um, he says, n- number one, Jesus acknowledges that, yeah, we actually do need physical stuff, right? And because we are indeed, you know, we are physical 
creatures, uh, you know, who have needs, you know, we need sandwiches, we need a roof over our heads, we need clothes to cover ourselves up. Um, but and so it's not that Jesus ever diminishes the, our need for those things, but he puts them in their proper place so that we don't, our lives are not consumed with all of that as well. And in many ways, not just this chapter, but many of the chapters of Deuteronomy, I believe, actually speak to that, where the Lord sort of, you might say, reorients their needs. And so, for, for example, it's not like Jesus, you know, uh, the, the Lord just tells him, like, well, here's all the things you can't do. He also says, here's all the animals you actually can eat because he recognizes, yes, they do need food to eat, right? Um, and uh, and so, but yet he re- um, he's communicating to them and us. Um, the the character of being his children is to be indeed holy. That means to be set apart. That means to be different. That means that they don't aren't going to act just like the rest of the nations are going to act. Who um who you know who eat pigs and uh, in eels and uh, you know and, and the cormorant and whatever that thing is and the seagull and all these other animals, right? Um, and so. Yeah, was it, was it the cormorant or no? I no, we actually know what that is. It was the hoopy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure if I pronounced it right. I'm not sure either. So <laughs> just, just say it with confidence, right? Oh wait, I that's said, exactly it. I said that out loud. That was this. That was the pastoral secret, wasn't it? That's uh, right. <laughs> so, so I mean, to to keep going on this, you know, your sons. This is a gift, and so that's that's where all this stems from. I think it's important to see how verse two, it, it's a similar thing when the Lord brings up the matter of the holiness. You know, it, verse two, you are a people right. holy to the Lord your God. I think it's important that we, maybe we're tempted to hear that as a command, first and foremost, you you be holy. And right. certainly that's there in the Old Testament and new, but here it's, you are holy. This is this is gift language again. So holiness is a gift. It's also part of this, this relationship that God establishes. Take us into the holiness aspect here. Right, right. Holiness, I think, is so often misunderstood because I think it's, a, it's so ingrained into us as being a function of what we do. Right. I mean, because people say, oh, well, you're acting all holier than thou. Right. I mean, that's often how it kind of uh, enters into our vernacular. But this is this is a statement. I mean, because what's behind all of this is the fact that by definition, the Lord is holy because he is not us. He is not the things that are unholy or that is um, common um, that, that's the other term, by the way, for, un, you know, the opposite of unholy is to, to be right. called common, um, which doesn't just means there, there's a lot of them. It, it means that, that something is, is often unclean. And so, but you, you're right. It's a declaration because the Lord is holy. That's why they are holy. They are truly, they're set apart for a particular purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, so in other words, it's, it's kind of like, like father, like son. If the father is holy, then likewise, the, uh, the, the children are holy too. And, and it's reflected in, and it, it's this very, um, uh, what's the word I want to say? Expansive, kind of all-encompassing kind of reality. Uh, I think sometimes we as, uh, you know, Westerners especially, we, we tend to think of Christianity as primarily a, um, a thing in our heads, right? You know, it's, it's a thing that we that we think about 
um, rather than things that we do. But the, the you know the Israelites they understood this all too well that that holiness was um, was matter of of your actions and your body and your mind and your mouth and all these things right and so everything was to be holy your entire way of life and um, and that's in many ways one of the things that makes sense of this long list of you know uh, of holy and unholy animals because if you think about it what's what's one of the few things that universally that all human beings do i mean if you really think about it it's you know it's uh it's eating and sleeping are about the two most basic things you can do right um and uh you know and sleeping while the lord doesn't have quite as much to say about that but in terms of eating the israelites are one of the ways in which they are signaled to be set apart from the rest of the nations is by their diet now um Quick, quick aside, but I think it's worthwhile at this point. I know a lot of effort has been, um, you know, put into m- sort of making some kind of sense of, uh, you know, of all these animals, you know, why the Lord would have prohibited them, you know, if they're particularly fatty or they carry certain diseases or whatnot. And I'm not necessarily opposed to any of those ideas, but I think you can easily lose the forest in the trees, um, you know, with, with that, those kinds of efforts. Yeah, you know, could it be that the Lord is also at the same time not only, you know, setting them apart from the four nations, but also, you know, giving them healthier diets? Sure, I think that's entirely possible. But I don't think we want to explain it away too much as, well, God's just teaching the Israelites to be healthy. I don't know if you've ever read a commentary like this. I have, though. And um, and so I, I want to make sure that we keep it in focus that you know, even if we don't have like good quote unquote explanations for all these, um, you know, uh, you know, wh- why can't they eat falcons? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, is that it does indeed set them apart and that whatever the Lord would tell them, you know, if the Lord tells them, you know, that you can't eat, a, you know, a purple raccoon for some reason, like, listen, it's, that's the Lord's command. He's got a good reason for it. And we may not know it. It's Okay. But the point is, is that because the Lord actually, because he declares it, that's actually what sets the action apart. And I think, right. Oh, well, and if I can just say, I mean, that's, that's what actually makes it good right. is that the Lord's word set it apart to be good. Like, like you said there, there, and I've, I've seen commentaries like this and I'm, I'm sympathetic to such explanations that because it, you know, when the Lord sets down his law for his people, he does so for their good. And so it, it would fit to me that there would be a dietary reason behind it. Like I could see that fitting, but if I can't find that particular explanation in some sort of health science or nutritional science, that's okay. Because ultimately what makes this good is the fact that this is the way the Lord has set his people apart to live. And in this case to eat. So, but let's go ahead and take our break there. We can pick up that conversation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Deuteronomy 14 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you? 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 25th. We're studying Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 to 21 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about the command that the Lord gives, separating clean and unclean animals, and how what makes these things good isn't necessarily any dietary benefit that there might be, though there there might be, but what actually makes them good is the fact that this is what the Lord has declared it to be. Why is that an important distinction to make? I mean, it's it's important in so many different places, but especially when it comes to um, knowing our status before the Lord, that is whether or not we are, we are justified. Because, um, you know, when push comes to shove, we have to say, well, you know, am I really a good person? And this, the standard way I think the world wants to evaluate that is, well, okay, it's your track record, right? It's all the things that you do. It's you do good things. Therefore, that means you're good. But fundamentally, that's not what the Lord says. He says, basically, you are good because I call you good, right? In other words, you are justified. That's the terminology that St. Paul used. Well, and of course, it's not just St. Paul, but um, he famously uses it in, in Romans chapter three. And so that's where we can have our confidence is not in the fact, well, you know, just as in the fact that um, we we don't rest our confidence on the fact that these animals, you know, uh, staying away from them somehow make make the people holy uh, because of some intrinsic unholiness in the animal. But just because the Lord says so, how much more then do we trust that, the, that we are indeed holy and justified and righteous before God because he says so? So we've been talking about holiness here, and I think it's probably worth saying that the animals are clean and unclean. The people of Israel right. are the the holy ones, right? That's that's a, a key distinction to make. That there is a difference between you know holiness on the one hand and sinfulness and clean and unclean. Clean and unclean does not necessarily mean holy and sinful. There there are things that are unclean that are not sinful. Right? I mean they're they're just that's what the Lord has said, stay away from, so you stay away from it. And if you become unclean, then you, you need to be made clean so that you can get, you can approach the Lord again. So there, there is a distinction there that is important, but, but thinking about holiness, as the Lord says, you know, you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, the way in the old Testament that this is shown, or one of the key ways is by the diet. Now you and I both eat bacon, or at least I think you eat bacon. No, I eat bacon. Yep. Okay. So that's one of the big ones that's a no-no for the people of Israel. 
the reason I bring that up is because holiness, holiness now that the Lord has come is not distinguished in our diet. So how do we see holiness come in the New Testament? What are some of the differences? But what are some of the similarities to what we've been talking about here in the Old Testament? Right. And we, we don't want to poo-poo the Old Testament too much, but we do recognize right. that, that the New Testament actually marks a shift uh, you know, in in that covenant, and also the you know the uh, the rules of clean versus unclean, and holy and unholy. You know, uh, some of the more um, noteworthy examples are the entire episode with Peter and Cornelius. If you remember, Peter goes to uh, to uh, to his house, and he's um, uh, you know, and he's. Uh, you know he's he's up on the roof and he has this vision about this sheet being let down from uh, from above and uh, you know the voice says rise Peter kill and eat and there's a bunch of unclean animals on it which uh, you know Peter later reflects on that and of course it is in part about the uh, you know about the holy and unholy animals but what it's really about is about how the Gentiles are likewise brought into the people of God. And um, similarly, when they're, they meet together at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, the fundamental question is, you know, do you have to follow all the rules of, you know, of, you know, of Judaism, you know, all the Old Testament, you know, legal rules in order to be a Christian? And their unequivocal answer is no. Now, they do give a couple of recommendations. They say, well, these are really good that you, uh, you know, that, that you avoid, but it's pretty clear that, you know, um, the, uh, you know, the Old Testament laws have been largely superseded. Now, there's some nuance to all that we don't have time for. But even if you think about, uh, you know, in Galatia, one of the things that St. Paul is dealing with there are a lot of these Jews or Christians who want to revert sort of back to Judaism. And, um, but the thing is that what makes the difference in all this is because so many of these rules regarding clean and unclean, holy and unholy, are really all pointing to Christ. And so and even today, we know that, that there's a, a fair number of our Christian brothers and sisters who are kind of still caught up in a lot of those things or even um, want to go back and subject themselves to a lot of the holiness code back in the uh, – uh, or the unclean, unclean code back in the Old Testament. But it really f- often fails to acknowledge the fact that Christ himself has come to fulfill a lot of those things. And so um, – uh, let me, I want to pause there for a second, but I do want to actually go on and talk a, just to cover a couple of ways that Jesus has fulfilled this. Pastor Apple, did you have anything that you, you wanted to jump in there with? No, I think, I think you've set the stage well. You've brought up several important texts from the book of Acts, both Acts 10 and, and 11. Peter recounts it, his vision. Right. That's, it, it happens, it gets recounted, and then in the Jerusalem Council, that's significant. So I think you, you've set up the right New Testament text. Let, let's go ahead and see how those play themselves out. But I, I also do want to make sure we do talk about similarity with the Old Testament right. holiness, because there's one of the things you said earlier about you know, the Lord has made these people holy, and now it's going to reflect in their lives in so many different ways. I think you see Paul making that similar move in his epistles as well. Absolutely. So I, I want to yeah. highlight where the differences do lie, but I also want to see the continuity as well. Right. So go ahead. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because the continuity is this, and maybe I was just assuming that everybody listening would, would pick this up, but that Paul talks in much the same way that 
verse two does. Um, you know, you are people holy to the Lord, or actually even more commonly says, you know, you are, you know, children of God adopted through Christ. And so that fundamental theological principle is still absolutely there. It's just how that holiness and how the, um, you know, their lives actually, um, manifest themselves. That's what really changes. But the fundamental theological reality, the Lord has taken us to be his own people, that we are his own children. He's our father, um, you know, and that we are to be holy in Christ. That doesn't change one bit. Um, but, uh, but to make, to understand that transition. Okay. So why don't we continue to, uh, to obey all the, uh, the old Testament regulations? Um, you know, a quick trip through Hebrews will actually elucidate that really nicely. You know, for example, you know, all the, uh, the Israelites, they're going towards the promised land and that's the location. And in many ways, the anchor of so many of those, of those practices, um, you know, of the holiness system, but, in Hebrews 4, we hear that Christ himself is the Holy Land. He's our promised rest. And so we no longer necessarily, and so that sort of loosens that tie to the, uh, you know, the, the promise of that physical place that the uh, the Israelites were anchored in their holiness. And then, of course, so much of their holiness is also tied up, you know, to the temple. But, of course, Christ is our great high priest, you know, Hebrews chapter 5, Um where he offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice in order to sanctify, that is, to make his people holy. And so we see um, that, you know, in retrospect, all of those ways in which they thought they were making themselves holy were really just pointing ahead to how Christ would ultimately make us holy as well. And then, of course, you know, we can go to Hebrews uh, 7 and 10, which talk about Christ being the mediator of a new covenant and how we are set apart, that is, once again, made holy by him by his own uh by his own offering of his own flesh and blood um and um in in kind of mixed it you know in with all of this of course is the uh you know is the promise of the holy spirit who you know um as we go through the catechism we recognize christ as the saint or i'm sorry the holy spirit as the sanctifier that is the one who makes holy um I know it's a little confusing in English, you know, uh, sanctify and to make holy. That's one and the same thing. I don't know why we've got holy and to make sanctified. English is funny. You know, we, we, we end up that's right. with two different terms for it. But like in, in the original uh, Greek, that's really one and the same root word for it. Right. Just like the word saint, we, could under, we can understand that. Right. One who has been made holy. Mm-hmm. S- same root word there. Right, right. Yeah. So no, and that's really important. I think one of the the places where perhaps there's a danger for us to think that there's discontinuity, when there's really not, is that maybe we're we're tempted to think, okay, in the Old Testament, their holiness was seen in all these very physical ways. You know, I mean, we talk here about the way that you mourn and not making baldness or cutting yourselves, and then especially what you eat in this text. So those are very physical ways to indicate the the holiness. But in the New Testament, they tend to be not so physical, and, and that you know somehow there's a discontinuity there. I think that's one of those places that we we need to make sure we're we're careful. There is continuity. It may not be in the exact same way, but right. our holiness certainly is a gift from God. That is a spiritual gift, but it does manifest itself in in very physical real life ways, right. if I can say it like that. Yeah, no, I mean, a couple of my favorite Bible passages that, that relate to that are um, like Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, uh, sorry, 
12 verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, of course, broader context, we need to understand chapter 12, because you could, if you take that out of context, it could easily be... Um, be misunderstood as well here's how you you know here's how you please the lord right here's how you make yourself holy well all of that is you know in the long train of you know of uh romans chapter three where we see our righteousness actually comes through faith in christ jesus and this is the you know this is the implication of living in step with the spirit then but you notice though i mean he says present your bodies right bodies and and very much so if i would say even more powerfully in first corinthians chapter six you know as paul is is uh talking about this uh this terrible situation he's got in the corinthian congregation where a guy's sleeping with his stepmom and he says you know we can't have this because there was um in the air you might say uh you know during um you know in, in corinth and uh you know at the period uh in the period where so many people made light of the fact that, you know, your bodies were really kind of nothing. It was this idea of, you know, which we, we usually call Gnosticism, where you're, it wasn't your bodies that were important. It was your spirit that was really important. So, you know, no big deal what you do with your body because as long as your spirit's in the right place, right? Paul says, oh, no, we can't have any of that. He says in uh, chapter 6, verse 19, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God, from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, right? And uh, I mean, so there's so many applications, especially as we talk to, you know, our own, uh, you know, our own families and our own parishioners about this, that um, here's the reality. You know, once again, much like Deuteronomy 14, St. Paul simply puts it out there. He doesn't say we're trying to be, you know, temples of the Holy Spirit or we're trying to please God with our bodies. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, full stop. This is the reality for us. And so how then ought we to conduct ourselves if this is indeed already the reality? Because our bodies don't belong to us. I mean, think about what a radical statement that is, especially in kind of our, you know, um, you know, our abortion obsessed culture. And, and frankly, more than that, our culture, which often, um, you know, portrays, I think it's some of the most ironic times, um, you know, personal bodily autonomy as being one of the greatest goods, right? But think about this. I mean, tell tell your neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor next door, like, well, I don't really, you know, this really isn't my body at all. You know, somebody else owns me. I mean, that's that's got to be the weirdest thing to them. <laughs> well, right. So, but it, it, and all of this goes back to what Moses has been laying out here that this is this is the Lord who has established His relationship with His people. Right. It's by it's by His action, and and he, we've talked about two of the three ways that that really comes up. They are sons. The Lord is Father. They are sons. They are holy. He is holy, and He has made them holy. And then the third way that Moses brings that on this text in in verse two, he also says, "The Lord has chosen you." So that's the the third thing. Talk about the the importance of this language, the the choice of the Lord. Right. I mean, this is making explicit what we've sort of already been hinting around at um, is that the, um, you know, it's not like the Israelites found some hidden tablet somewhere and <laughs> discovered God, right? They didn't, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't like do, um, 
they didn't do interviews with all the deities back in the time, like, oh, I choose Yahweh, right? No, it, it was so opposite. You know, I already, we already talked a little bit about Exodus and how the people like barely even knew who God was. But going all the way back to, you know, Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham doesn't find God. God finds him. Um and so, but it's so perfectly consistent, even within the book of Deuteronomy itself, we see it all over the place. You know, one of the most famous parts, and frankly, one of my favorite verses is from Deuteronomy chapter seven, uh, just a couple chapters earlier, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Identical, identical with what we have here in verse two, the Lord your God. So this is returning back to chapter seven. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here's here's the greatest part, but it's not exactly a pat on the back for the Israelites. It was not because you were more in number than all the other people that Lord set his love on you and chose you, right? In other words, it, because it wasn't because you were great, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And I mean, repeatedly throughout the um, the throughout the Old Testament, the Lord reminds them, like, listen, you guys weren't great. It's not because you had A's on your report cards or because you were voted most pious and, you know, in the year, well, you know, whatever, 16, whatever it is that I think they're around her. Um, so you're 1406 BC. 14, okay, thank you. Thank 14, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's not six. Yeah. Eight, yeah. They, they were in Egypt, 1800s, 1400s. They, uh, what, 1450. That's when they're coming out. Uh, my, my, that's right. my chronology is, it's a little rusty here, but, <laughs> okay. but right, right. And so the point is is that um there you know he chooses them i cannot possibly you know the, the old testament cannot possibly make this any clearer the people are the lord's choice but also think about this it's also the lord doesn't just choose his people he also chooses the land and he even chooses the temple um you know so um the uh, you know we we if we uh, zip ahead to Deuteronomy twenty six he says you shall take some of the the first of the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place listen real carefully you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there right it he's making reference to the tabernacle or the temple. Right. This is this is the place that he promises. If you remember, fast forward to um, uh, oh, where, where is it? The uh, Solomon's dedication prayer for the temple um, in in first Kings. Eight, yeah, first Kings. Yeah. First Kings seven. First Kings eight. Somewhere around there. Um, and he and he says, this is the place where I chose to put my name. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, you'll pray to there and you can be guaranteed. I'm going to be there because I put my name there. Right. And he chooses that. And then, uh, you know, then earlier on Deuteronomy 12, um, he's talking about the land. He shall say, he says, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose, right? The Lord your God will choose and make his habitation there. That's where you're going to go. And so all of these things are his choosing. The Israelites basically have, you know, it, it's like the Lord is the best, um, uh, What's 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 the name of the person? I'm, I'm blinking on it right now. Um, your tour guide, right? He lays it all out for you. You don't have to. You don't have to do any of the work. He's Rick Steves on steroids for all of them, right? He he chooses the he chooses them. He chooses the place where he's going to dwell. He's going to choose the place where they're all going to live, and he's going to make it all holy by his choosing. That's the key thing, right? 
And I mean, you know, in that, that, that fits perfectly then with when Jesus, for example, says to his own disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you to go and bear good fruit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is, this is all by God's grace, which we've seen that throughout Deuteronomy. You brought up the, the Deuteronomy seven passage, which is a, a wonderful text in this book. Similarly in, in Deuteronomy chapter nine, the Lord reminds his people that, that he didn't choose them because they were so righteous. In fact, they were rebellious is the whole point of, of Deuteronomy chapter right. nine. So you know, over and over again, the Lord's choosing the Lord's being father, the Lord's making his people holy. This is a matter of his grace. And now graciously, he gives them this way to live it out in their diet. And it's probably worth you pointing out again how this continues into the New Testament. You mentioned the passage from John 15, where the Lord himself says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. How else do we see this language of being chosen by God in the New Testament for for his church? Yeah, um, I mean, if you just do a, uh, you know, you are a royal people or a chosen people, a uh, Hold on, I'm trying to remember where where that is. Uh, a royal nation, a people belonging to God. I want to say that is that uh, is that First Peter, Second Peter. Um, I think it's First Peter. Yeah, First Peter. Right, 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 right. Yeah, First Peter chapter two. Um, you know, in fact, this is this one's worth uh, reading in a little bit more uh, um, uh, in a little bit more length, a little more fullness. So First Peter two verse starting with verse four. You know, as you have, uh, have come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You could almost read right, you know, holy right there because he's going to say it next. You yourselves like living stones are being, are being built up, right? Not building yourselves up, but it's a passive, which means this is not your doing, right? You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, through Jesus Christ. Um, you know, so and you got it all there. You've gotten you've not only been chosen, but even your sacrifices are not sacrifices of your own doing, but they're being offered through Jesus Christ, which is what makes them acceptable in the first place. You know, for it, it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying a, a, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But this is the verse I wanted to get to. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people uh, for his own possession. So you notice the, the verbal parallels here, even with Deuteronomy 14, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So... Pastor Johnson, we got about four minutes here on the morning, and, and there's, you know, I mean, there's so much text here, and it's a lot of animals. Right. Maybe the the way I'd like to to close, you know, we we've talked about how there is discontinuity in the way that this comes into the New Testament. You referenced Peter's vision in Acts chapter ten, where the Lord Himself tells Peter, "Rise, kill, and eat." To this sheet that's full of what otherwise would have been unclean animals, the Lord tells Peter. You know, don't call common what the Lord has made clean. And, and Peter recognizes it, it's not just about what you eat. There's a there's something there about the Gentiles being included. That's the main point. Right. But we, we know from the New Testament, from the Gospels, that Jesus then also is declaring all foods clean. So, and, and you've made reference there. There are some Christians that, that take these dietary laws pretty seriously still. And every once in a while, you'll see a, 
a book that'll come out. I, I can't remember any of the, the, the ones out there. I think it was one on like the Daniel plan, you know, where I'll try to look at the old Testament and say, okay, look, this was how they ate in the old Testament. If you eat this way now, you can lose weight or have all these health benefits, whatever it may be. And, and we kind of laugh at that, but I guess I, I want to be, be careful knowing that there, you know, we've talked about how holiness for us, it's not a non-physical thing. You know, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Right. How, how does what we eat and drink, is there anything for this for us as Christians? I mean, I don't know. Take that where you want, but I guess that's that's kind of, we laugh at these things, and yet at the same time, I don't know that we should ignore what we eat and drink as Christians either. Maybe just being good stewards of the bodies God has given us is, is part of it. I, just thoughts on that is, is kind of what I'd like to, to think about as we close. Right. No, I mean, that's actually, <laughs> that's a really challenging, but a really good question. I mean, because you have- and You only have three minutes. Right. So you, you have the- Good luck. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Throw me a real curveball here at the end. We'll see how we do here. <laughs> no, um, there's, I think in, in some ways, there's a little bit of the application of you know, Paul's kind of comments about eating meat sacrificed to idols, uh, you know, sort of inherent in, in, in all of this in 1 Corinthians. Because if you remember the, uh, you know, the situation, in fact, Paul almost seems like he's talking out of both sides of, of his mouth when he gives, um, you know, stipulations about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says, well, on the one hand, you can't go and eat, you know, can't participate in an idol sacrifice. But on the other hand, if it's, you know, if it's been sold in the market and it's served to you at somebody's house, then go ahead unless they're scandalized. And so, I mean, in that regard, we recognize that we have freedom. I mean, perhaps one of the best passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. It says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. But I think it kind of cuts both ways. That I think Paul want, wants to warn us here about a certain kind of legalism that is common. You know, because like, listen, hey, if you want to fashion your dietary uh, plan according to the Old Testament, we have freedom to do that. I can't tell you not to do that, but I can tell you that it's not going to commend you to God. And so that, on the one hand, is sort of the spiritual side of things. Well, I shouldn't say spiritual side, but that's that's one side of it. But you're right. You're right in the sense that we are indeed commanded, you know, and encouraged to glorify God with our bodies. And I don't think that that is um, that it's out of the realm of application to say, you know, hey, we actually should take care of ourselves and we should actually exercise and, uh, you know, and not treat our uh, our bodies like human garbage disposals because there's an awful lot of garbage. And so, I mean, we really walk this sort of careful tightrope, not becoming legalists about, you know, in turning, um, you know, like, uh, you know, we don't want to become, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you want to what what you want to call it, but we don't want to put too much emphasis um, and and turn exercise and diet into false gods themselves. We need to be careful about doing that. But on the flip side, you don't want to fall off the other side of the horse either and say, well, and it doesn't matter because then you became modern day Gnostics where all that really matters is sort of like the mind or the spirit and that your bodies then you just let waste away. God gave us these bodies as a gift. And although we recognize that they will, they are indeed wasting away and that we cannot preserve them for all time, that doesn't mean that we don't take care of them as long as the Lord has given them to us. And so, uh, yeah. 
So yeah, how many minutes do I have left? That's about time. Okay. So no, and that, and that was that was a helpful answer to to avoid the two pitfalls of legalism on the one hand, antinomianism on the other, and live right there in the middle in the gospel, which is where this text centers what our Lord has done for us as His people. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Deuteronomy fourteen verses one to twenty one. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. God's God's grace called his people Israel to be his own people, to be his sons. And so we are sons of God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the holiness that he gives, we live. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.